In John chapter 11, we learn that killing Jesus was actually considered by some to have been a good thing for the nation of Israel. The chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered the Sanhedrin together, and that Jewish governing body, and, uh, and they rationalized with themselves. If we let him go like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Their greatest fear was not killing an innocent man. Their greatest fear was not killing even this who was the Son of God, as some of them well knew. But their greatest fear was losing place as a nation and as leaders in a nation. That was their greatest and most concerning fear. In today's study, we're going to read where the Pharisees say to one another in John chapter 12, verse 19, you see that you are gaining or we are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. If only it had stayed that way, things would have been written differently. But we'll read today where things did not stay that way. Today, in our study of John and the continued thoughts on focusing on Christ, as has been our, our overall theme throughout this year as a congregation, uh, we enter into the final days uh, before Jesus' death. As a matter of fact, to be very specific, only six days before Jesus' death. And he knows that it's all drawing to a conclusion. It's coming to a close, at least his purpose here on earth and why he came. And if you had six more days to live, how would you spend those days? I mean, what would it be that you would, you would find important enough to spend time doing or or or? Who would you contact? All of that information, right? What, what would you do if you had only six more days left? Well, that, answer, that is answered in today's lesson with regard to what Jesus found important during this period of time. And I'd like for us to notice that, and I, I would especially like for you to notice that he is together with his family. It may not be his physical family necessarily, but he is together with spiritual family. And you'll notice that in our text uh, together this morning. So let's turn over to John chapter 12 and we'll read beginning in verse 1. If you're at home and you didn't intend to get your Bible out and follow along in study, I'd really like to encourage you to do that. Uh, you'll get much more out of it, I promise you, if you open up God's book and read it for yourself as we read together uh, this morning. So John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and we read there, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was whom he had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this, anointment not, uh, why was this uh, ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said, Jesus said, uh, 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 
Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having the the money bag used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, leave her alone so that we may keep it for the day of my, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Look down with me in verse 20 of the text. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So those uh, came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Verse 23, and and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servants be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I wish we had time to read more of the chapter and spend time Uh, more than we will get to in looking at the entirety of this chapter. But we'll stop for there and make some some thoughts before we we move on. What would you do again if you had six days to live in this world? You knew you only had six days left. You knew your life uh, physically was coming to an end. What would you do? That's not a dumb question. It actually is a thought-provoking question because the answer to that question expresses to us, it reveals to us our priorities. Those are the things, in those six days, the things that we would find most important would be the things that we place the most priority on. It's a question that Jesus had to answer probably in his mind. He had limited time, and certainly now he sees himself as having very limited time, less than even one week. And we see that he spends that time with his spiritual family, right? It's important to know how important our spiritual family should be to us. We can't read this this whole section, like I say, but we're going to spend a little bit of time trying to cover at least some highlights out of this chapter. The first thing that we notice in this text is finding ourselves here with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha again in the town, the community of uh, that was called Bethany, which was just a few miles from Jerusalem. Verse 2 tells us that they gave a dinner for Jesus there when he came into this uh, area and to this household again. And Martha served while Lazarus was one of those who were reclining with him at table. You might remember a couple of weeks back, we asked the, we asked the question, where was Thomas when the disciples were all together and Jesus was there? Thomas wasn't there. And we, we made point of that. Where is Mary? Well, she's not like Thomas at this time. You notice that she's there, but she has something planned. In all of this, verse three, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, which is a an aromic uh, essential oil, 
and uh, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And it's important to notice within that text that this is not something that was normally done. I mean, this is not something like, for example, washing of feet uh, that took place when a person came to another person's house and there was a basin of water there at the door and they had sandals and dirty feet and it was customary to, to wash, uh, 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 to have a servant washing the feet of someone who came in. But that is not what is happening in this situation. This is extremely abnormal. It would be as abnormal as if we came to one another's house or something of that nature and we sat down or as it's talked about here, reclined, but we sat at the table and then someone comes and starts to, starts to anoint with oil the feet of another person. It, it wasn't a, 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 a Middle Eastern uh, a tradition that was being carried out. But what this is, we learn by looking at the text, is a point of worship in the mind of Mary. And it became a point of worship probably for all who were in the house. It should cause us to stop for a moment and consider how we worship our Savior. I have to think in my mind, I don't know that I would be wrong, that some who, uh, who worship God today, even perhaps even then, who worship the Lord, uh, may have been so, too self-conscious to consider doing such a thing like this, even for the Lord himself, the Son of God. Maybe too straight-laced or bottled up. And I'd like to ask you a question, if, if this is where we find ourselves when it comes to our worship to God, more self-conscious than spiritually conscious. Who is it that we are placing most of the emphasis on, if that's the case? If Mary had been more concerned with what everyone may have thought of her, who was there at that house as she was anointing the feet of Jesus, and look how silly she's being, look how crazy this is, this is not a normal thing to be doing, expressing herself this way uh, among those who are believers in Jesus Christ. And uh, if she had been more thoughtful of that, would she have been more self-conscious or spiritually conscious? More Godward or more people? oriented. Isn't it strange how guarded we can become if we're not careful in worship? Worship becomes dry, dull, and worthless to us if it is about anything other than God and the Son of God who we worship. Um, so Mary teaches several things within this text. I'd like to just touch on them Quickly, this is some of, we're going to go through some of our text fairly quickly uh, this morning, and so you'll need to, uh, you'll need to be uh, trying to keep up. Heartfelt worship should take place nowhere else but at the feet of Jesus, at least symbolically or, or maybe not literally speaking, but, you know, figuratively speaking, allowing his greatness and, and our unworthiness to be clearly seen by him and understood by we ourselves. His perfection and our sinfulness should be paramount in our mind. His ability to aid and our need for aid. His mercy and love and our thanks and our honor. All of these kind of things are what we see, no doubt, in the mind of Mary as she is anointing the feet of Jesus. Why else do you do that except to show honor to the one who deserves it and reverence by the one who should be giving it? 
Heartfelt worship is, is also concerned with the Lord. She cared only about what Jesus must have been thinking about her worship to him, her reverence to him, and less about what everyone else in the house must have been thinking. Judas might have been thinking something else. Maybe some others who were there. But the point is, our worship, though public, is also very personal, and we should never forget that when we approach our God. Heartfelt worship is also a worship of giving to the Lord, not always receiving from the Lord. And we notice that here as well. Anytime that we come before the Lord, whether it is in a formal assembly, perhaps like we're accustomed to doing on, on Sundays, the first day of the week, when we're told by the Lord to assemble together as his family, that's unique. And it's, it's a great privilege to do that, whether it's at those times or it's the time where we're just simply out even by ourselves and we, and we recognize God in life and in this world and we honor and glorify him. No matter when it is and how it is that we are worshiping, may we always seek to worship like Mary with a heart of a true disciple turned toward Jesus. That's what makes worship joyful and praise praiseworthy. And maybe the others in the house were also influenced by that. It makes point to say that the whole house smelled of this aroma that she was using to anoint Jesus with. And so maybe they also not only understood what Mary was doing, but it caused them perhaps to take greater part. We influence our brethren is a point that we can understand from that. When I worship as I should from the heart, I encourage my brethren to worship as they should from the heart also. Well, uh, all but one was doing that, I would like to thank, and that one we mentioned a moment ago, and that is Judas, verse 5 of our text. Notice that. Why, Judas says, was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, we are given privy information that even John at that time that moment, did not know. He only saw this in looking back on this information. Remember, this letter is written years after Jesus has already ascended back to heaven. But, it, but looking back on it, John gives us this, this privileged information, and that is Judas is not all that he portrayed himself to be. He fooled us, the disciples would have said, and he was doing things he should not have been doing. Uh, but even at the time, Judas showed who he was in a sense. He's thinking to himself, why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? Sounds admirable. It sounds like a good guy thinking, you know, this is a silly way to be using this ointment. Now, now stop for a moment and think of the implications of that. The greatest of all of those is, to whom was this being done? <laughs> Was this just a mere man? Was this just someone who was a, a good friend of the family and they were just so happy that he could be there and eating with them? Or did they see him as the very son of God himself? I don't think there's anything we could give anyone else that our God is not first worthy of, if it's of good things. Mary saw this as a moment that superseded even the poor in giving reverence first to the Lord. Judas obviously is not of that mind. 
He obviously is not seeing Jesus through the eyes of him being the son of God, or he never would have been even thoughtful of saying something like that. Instead of doing that to Jesus, you should have been giving that money over here instead. Who is Judas to say that about the son of God? What would you think most about if you had been Judas or Mary? Compare yourself to one of the two types of individuals in how they viewed Jesus Christ. When it comes to your worship and your life as a Christian, do we think more about the cost that it means to us? Or do we think more about the price that Jesus paid for us? What it cost Jesus for us to worship him is unfathomable. And therein lies uh, the life of a true worshiper from one who is not. What we see in the text is Mary thought nothing about what it cost to do what she was doing in honor of Jesus. Whereas Judas, on the other hand, only thought about the cost. And for selfish reasons at that. So Jesus corrects Judas, responding to him in verse 7, leave her alone so that she may keep it, or uh, literally the idea is so that she can recall it, uh, for the day of my burial, for the poor you have with you always, but you do not have me with you always. So sadly, Judas chose not to take Jesus' correction very favorably. That doesn't leave us unsurprised, does it? The fact of the matter is, after this event, Matthew and Mark, the corresponding Gospels, tell us at this point, Jesus left that assembly of God's people. He left that family, and he became set on betraying the Lord at that point. In fact, it was from here that he went out and began looking for those who could help him betray Jesus for a certain amount of money. So what we learn in verses 1 through 8 is that Mary speaks to us of worship. And in verses 9 through 11... Her brother speaks to us about influence. So notice that text again with me that we read. Uh, it's in verse, beginning in verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned about what Je- uh, that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Which makes Lazarus a target for the Jewish leaders as well. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, look at that word, it's it's an important word, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You ever thought that the things that you have to offer aren't all that great? Now, think about this with regard to Lazarus. What has Lazarus done? What has Lazarus done? He's done nothing with regard to him becoming some great icon or saint. What has he done? Jesus has raised him from the dead. That's the only part Lazarus had in all of this was what Jesus did. There are some great lessons that we could spend a lot of time on with regard to that very point. Whoever we are, whatever we are, is only because of what God has created within us to be. But I want you to notice further here, though Lazarus may have been thinking, "I, I, I don't have that much to offer all All that happened with me is I died and Jesus came and rose me back from the dead. I had nothing personally to do with that. It's all about the Lord. I want you to notice that he had had something to do with many of the Jews going away and believing in Jesus. He's willing 
to be used this way, for God to use what he has done in him this way, his experiences to testify about Jesus. I'd like to spend a lot of time on that if we could this morning, but, but we don't have the time for it. If, if, I'll just simply say it this way, that if you are one who, who is feeling like God can't use you, you need to think again. Because it's not your abilities and your talents that are the only things at play with what God does among his people. Know for certain he can use you. He's willing to use anyone who is willing to be used if you're willing to put forth the influence and the testimony that he requires. It may be that we would be really amazed to know the impact that our life has on others. Just because one does not teach or one does not preach or one does not lead singing or or in some other way do very public things among God's people does not mean that they do not have great impact and influence for God in the lives of people around them. A person's very life is an influence. The outreach that we have, the speaking up in personal relationships for God, your past, your future, your testimony about Jesus Christ and what he has done in your life, all of that makes impact in its ways that God uses his people daily in order to have impact on people around them. It all makes a, a significant purpose for God. I don't get the impression that Lazarus had any problem of saying, yeah, yeah, this is really me. Come on, t- you can touch me, touch me. You'll see that I really am who, I, who, who everyone is saying that I am. I'm really Lazarus. I mean, put that in your mind for a moment and, and think to yourself. He didn't crawl off in a hole and say, I just can't handle all this attention. Or I just can't say these things. Or I just can't do this thing. I can't be seen. I don't care for crowds. <laughs> I mean, that, that, this is not where Lazarus is at. He's willing to be who God needs him to be in order to testify about Jesus Christ and his power. Well, then John takes us to the next day. Verse 12 tells us those who had been at the feast, uh, in, uh, they, they hear uh, over there in Bethany, they hear about Jesus now moving on into Jerusalem. And what we read in verse 13 is they took up branches and, and palm trees and they went, about, uh, they went out to meet him there in Jerusalem at the entry to Jerusalem. And they were crying out, Hosanna, which is an ex- explanation of adoration toward, toward, uh, 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 toward Jesus. Literally, it means, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And we might expect for Jesus now to be seen coming through the gates of Jerusalem. And, uh, and he has rocketed in his love and his attention, his fame uh, among the people. Uh, and uh, and they're, all, they're all in favor of him. As a matter of fact, we saw where the Pharisees said, uh, look, we're gaining nothing in this, in this battle that we have against Jesus. Everybody in the whole world is, go- is going toward him. And so he is rocketed in his fame here. Wouldn't you expect to see Jesus come in with a cohort of soldiers that are armed, maybe, maybe 
you know, a couple dozen in front and maybe a few hundred people in the rear of this great, uh, this great parade that's taking place now. And Jesus is in his chariot uh, with his uh, war horse in front of him. He's dressed in gold armor that is sparkling, you know, and, and, and he just looks radiant like a king with an entourage. What we do learn is that people are waving palm branches that they've that they've gotten, and they are laying their outer garments there on the ground for Jesus' entry into the, into the kingdom of the kings, the city of the kings, the city of David. Verses 14 through 16 of, uh, of this text tell us, uh, and, and, and what is it we see? Jesus finds this young donkey. Notice it says down, uh, down in verse 14, he finds a young donkey, a symbol of humility, poverty, peace, certainly not of fame, riches, and grandeur, like a king. He sits on it, just as is written in Zechariah 9, verse 9. I'm going to put Zechariah 9, verse 9 up here, but I'm going to read from our text, and I want you to, know, to think about the fact this is 500 years before Jesus. 500 years before Jesus, we read what we do in Zechariah and is partially quoted here in verse 15 of our text this morning from John chapter 12. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand this, John says, at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done by him. They may not have known it at the time, but this crowd was fulfilling prophecy. It's not generic prophecy. Did you notice that? (laughs) It's pretty specific to say someone is going to come through the gates of Jerusalem riding a donkey's colt, a young donkey. And people are going to be reacting the way that they are reacting to that. That's a pretty specific prophecy. If anybody doubts the truth of who Jesus is, and, and the honesty of the scriptures, the, pro, the, uh, the, the proper teaching of the scriptures, when you read such specific fulfillments like that, how could you doubt the word of God? Jewish religious leaders would have likely made this connection. It doesn't say that they did. I'm, I'm assuming that they did. They, after all, were teachers of the law. They were, they were, uh, they were lawyers of the law. They knew it frontwards and backwards. And it resulted in something other than what was good from the Pharisees. Verse 19, you see that, that you, we, are gaining nothing. Looking, uh, look, at the, look how the world has gone after him, it says there in verse 19. However, as we know, even that knowledge of who Jesus was would not stop them from, from fulfilling another prophecy, and that is that they would be the culprits who kill the Savior. Well, from here, John shifts yet to another day in this chapter. And that day goes from verses 20 all the way through verse 50. So let's turn and read all of that together and make, no, I'm just kidding. We're going we're gonna to quickly make some points of that together and then we'll wrap it up this morning, okay? A few, a few proselytes come to Jesus. Uh, they're Greeks and uh, they are brought by Philip and Andrew as we read in our text. And then the rest of the chapter is about a lesson that comes from Jesus that we can draw some major points from just very briefly. And they're surface points 
And I'd like to encourage you that if, uh, if you have time later on that you read from this and you, and you not only reconsider some of these points and look deeper into them, but, but there are many other points that we won't touch on uh, in this chapter this morning. The first of, of the points that we want to look at, though, is that the cross and his death are impending. I mean, Jesus knows that this is happening and it's happening right away. He doesn't think it's three months from now, a year from now. He knows it's coming, and the reason we know that is in verse 23. It tells us, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 27, now is my soul uh, troubled. Verse 31, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He even knew what kind of death that he would be dying. Jesus knows the time, the place, the sacrifice, and what that would involve, and it all has finally arrived. The second point we notice from this is found in verse 27, and that is that Jesus understands the pain is going to be great, but the glory of God will be greater. Verse 27, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Oftentimes, at the Lord's table, we remember the conquering of sin. It's done through the grace of Jesus Christ. As he offers himself there on the cross in our place. But brethren, the strain of Jesus knowing that it was coming had to be tremendous. We know it was tremendous even from the standpoint not of this text alone, but of where Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 26 verse 39, on the very night before his crucifixion, Oh my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The result would be wonderful. For the purpose of God in the saving of you and me. But let us never forget that the physical and the spiritual suffering Jesus went through was tremendous. It's free, but it's only free to us. It certainly was not free to Jesus, the Messiah, in giving himself as a lamb, as we read a couple weeks ago, led to the slaughter. The suffering would be immense for Jesus, but the praise and the glory of God, both to God as well as to the Son, would be tremendous. And we still celebrate that even still today. The glory that goes to God for the good that he has done on our behalf is not lightly thought of. The third thing that we notice is in verses 35 and 36, and that is that the need is urgent. The need is urgent. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have light. Jesus says the light's present. You need to do what you can while you can. I would just say to some who may be out there who are putting off the message of Jesus Christ, you've been hearing for a while. Do you think Jesus is saying to you as well, I'm with you for a little while? I mean, the truth of the matter is one day, will be the last of the rest of the six days we have left in this world. At some point in our existence and, and life here on earth, walk while you have the light. 
The light will not be with us forever if we choose not to respond to the call of Christ. Walk while you have light. Respond properly is what he's saying to the light. And then finally, the purpose or the responses, I should say, will be different. And that's found in verses 37 all the way through the end of the chapter. 37 all the way through the end of the chapter. Look at verse 37, for example. There's going to be those who reject him. There's going to be those who choose not to reject him. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Can you believe that? We say we wouldn't do that. That depends. Where's our heart? They still did not believe in him. But it was part of his knowledge that not all would believe, just as it was part of God's knowledge that some would. Look at verse 32, uh, 42 of the text. 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not, put, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from from God. And that is a horribly sad statement about the response of some people, isn't it? I understand who Jesus is. I understand what it would be to have eternal salvation. But the fact is, I care more about someone else than I do God. That's what, that's what John is observing in these people as God speaks through him in giving us this, uh, uh, this information from the scriptures. It helps us to conclude some some things which are of practical application, though, and it serves as a good close for this morning's thoughts. Salvation is only to those who are more concerned about what God thinks than anyone else. No one else can have privy to salvation. No one else will have the blessings of eternal life except those who care more about what God wants than what anybody else wants. I ask you a question, are you more like those that we've read of early in the text, or are you more like those that we've read of here at the end of the text? Are you more like those who were assembled with Jesus and Lazarus' family and the two sisters? Or are you more like these that we've read of here? Secondly, following Christ is, is not implemented on selfish terms. Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, if we really want to live, we're going to have to we're going to have to let go of some things in this world that are important to most people. Namely, self and self-concerns. What does he say? Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. <clears throat> and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the, follow, the Father will, serve, will, will honor him. So what does he say? Three great points. You want to live? You got to die to yourself. You want to be someone? You got to follow Jesus Christ. You want to honor? You want honor? You've got to serve the Lord. If you only had six days left to live, how would you spend them? <clears throat> Fact is, you might only have six days left to live. No, none of us know that. Most people don't get to be privy to that information. After looking at this text, the more thoughtful would no doubt say what I want to do are the three things that Jesus talks about are absolutely essential here at the end of this text, verses 25 and 26 that we read. To which God might say, if you haven't already, 
Why does it take the threat of death to cause you to decide to start living life for God? I mean, I mean, why does it take that extreme? Jesus faced death because he placed his outcome in the Father's hands. And we face life and death by placing our outcome in the very same. God is faithful. God can be trusted. Jesus did it. We follow him. If you find yourself in need this morning to die to the old man, be resurrected to a new God-fearing person where God exerts his power in your life, we urge you to contact us in one of the ways that, that we have here this morning. I mean, you can, you can pick up the phone right now and you can write a message or you can call and leave a message. You can contact us through our internet site. But you need to contact us and you need to be part of what God wants you to be part of. We're encouraging you. Respond while you're able to walk in the light. And if you're, privy, if you're subject to that, if you're willing to respond in God's way this, this way, contact us in one of these ways today, and don't delay. While together we sing this song of invitation and encouragement.